States. We are going to be back at the Anaheim Stadium again this year. How many of you have ever been to one of these crusades? Raise up your hand. Oh, quite a few of you. Good. Well, we're going to be there again this year on July 4, 5, 6, and 7 at the Anaheim Stadium. And we're also making plans sometime this year to hold our first Harvest Crusade up here in the Los Angeles area. In fact, uh, one facility we're working on securing right now is the Universal Amphitheater. And so uh, please keep that in prayer. And we hope that that works out because that'd be a wonderful opportunity to get the message of the gospel out to a whole bunch of people up in this area that really need to listen to it. How many of you brought a Bible with you this morning? Let me see it here. Oh, good. Okay, most of you. Why don't you turn in it right now to the book of Jonah? Jonah. is a second chance. And I wonder if any of you have ever tried to run from the will of God in your life. Perhaps you thought your ideas were better than His, or you knew there was something that needed to be done, and yet you chose not to do it. Well, if so, then you will be able to understand a guy like Jonah. You know, when we think of the story of Jonah, we immediately go to the part where Jonah was swallowed by a whale or a great fish. And I'll address that in a few moments, but that is really not the primary message of the book of Jonah. The primary message of this book is it's a story of a man that was given a job to do and did not do it. God used some gentle persuasion in his life to bring him to his senses. And Jonah began to see things, God, see things God's way. But then as a result of his obedience to the Lord, it resulted in the greatest revival in human history. But the Lord told Jonah to do something, and he did not want to do it. And of course, we know the story. We'll read it in a few moments. But he was swallowed by a great fish or a whale. Now, the Bible says that the Lord prepared a great fish. Another way to translate it is the Lord ordained a great fish. So it may have been a custom-designed fish that God made just for Jonah. Man had a front room, a couple of bedrooms, I don't know. I don't have a problem with it because I think when you get down to it, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, the rest of the Bible is going to be a snap for you, right? If you can believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you're not going to have a problem with the virgin birth. You're not going to have a problem with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You're not going to even have a problem with the story of a man being swallowed by a whale or a great fish. Reminds me of a story that I heard of a young girl that was out sharing the gospel on a street corner. She was young in the faith. She just barely knew her Bible, but she loved the Lord. And as a little crowd was beginning to gather, a well-known atheist, he was a professor at a local college, came and began to listen and said, oh, look at this little girl talking to these people about Jesus. And this man said, I'm going to embarrass her in front of all of these people. I'm going to fire some questions at her that she will not be able to answer. So as she's talking along, he says, excuse me, young lady, I have a question for you. She said, yes, sir. Uh, you believe in the Bible, is that correct? Oh, yes, sir, she said. I believe every word in the Bible is true. Oh, is that so? <laughs> well, then you must believe that the miracles in the Bible are true. She said, absolutely. I believe in every miracle found in the pages of Scripture. Oh, really, he said then surely you must believe in the story of Jonah. Oh, yes, I believe that story. He said, then you must believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. She said, yes, I believe that. 
Well, tell me, young lady, how is that possible that a man could be swallowed by a whale and live to tell about it? She said, I don't know, sir. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. He said, really? Well, what if he's in hell? She said, well, then you ask. You might try that sometime. I don't know. But probably the greatest proof for the authenticity of the story of Jonah next to the fact that it's mentioned in the Bible is that Jesus himself authenticated it. He said, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to them but that of the prophet Jonah. And even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will I, the son of man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he validated it and also used it to illustrate the story of his crucifixion and resurrection of the dead. But as I said, the story of Jonah is a story of a man with a mission. He was given a job to do, and he flatly refused. And so it gives hope to those of us who have failed. I don't know if you've ever failed in life. I'm sure you have. And it's a good thing that we serve a God that gives second chances, isn't it? And third ones, and fourth ones, and fifth ones. So this is a story of God extending a second chance to one of His children who failed. I'm going to read to you a few verses. You can read along with me if you like. It's Jonah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down to it to go with them, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship was about to be broken up, and all of the sailors and mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God, and they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah, Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had fallen asleep. So the captain comes and says, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call on your God, and perhaps your God will consider us, so we may not perish. And they said one to another, Let's cast lots that we may know who for, for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. They cast lots, and they fell on Jonah. And they said, Please tell us. And I'm just going to sort of tell the story from this point on. Where do you come from? Who are you? Jonah said, Well, I am a Hebrew, and uh, I fear the Lord God who made the winds and the sea, and uh, this storm has come because of me. And then they said, well, how do we get the storm to stop? Jonah said, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Oh, we couldn't do that. And so they began to row harder and harder. How again are we supposed to stop the storm? Jonah said, throw me overboard. They said, well, we're going to shore. What's that again? Throw me. So they pitched him overboard. Get rid of this guy. The storm stops, and the Lord sends this great fish to swallow Jonah. And that's where we'll stop. But here's an interesting thing. The Bible says that God spoke to him and said, go and preach to the city of Nineveh. Another way to translate that would be, get up and go. And Jonah got up and went, all right, but not to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction. Instead of going 500 miles northeast to Nineveh, Jonah attempts to go 2,000 miles west to a place called Tarshish. It would be like the Lord said to you, go and preach in New York, and you bought a plane fare and went to Hawaii. You went in the opposite direction. But why did God tell Jonah to preach to Nineveh? Because verse 2 says, The wickedness has come up before me. Or another way to translate it, Their wickedness has reached a high degree or the highest pitch. 
or their wickedness is full to the brim. And this shows that God is acutely aware of the wickedness of man. As we look at our culture right now, as we look at how immoral it has become, how violent it has become, how radical things are getting, we may wonder, when is God going to do something? When is God's judgment going to be meted out? When is God going to intervene? It seems like it just goes further and further. When is the Lord going to do something about all of this? But God always extends His grace before His judgment falls. But know this, judgment is coming to this country. And judgment is coming to this world as a whole. But God takes no delight in bringing judgment. He himself says that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. That he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's God's desire that before this judgment comes upon this earth to bring more people into his kingdom. And that's where we come in. And that's where Jonah came in. The Lord is saying, Jonah, go talk to them. Tell them that judgment is coming. Tell them what my word is. And Jonah said, no, I don't want to do it. And why is that? Because the Ninevites were a very wicked people. Nineveh was a capital of the Assyrians, and it was legendary for its cruelty. Graphic accounts of their cruel treatment of captives have been found in Assyrian records. The Ninevites were well known for their savagery and plundering cities. They would burn boys and girls alive, and they would torture adults tearing their skin from their bodies and leaving them to die in the scorching sun. And not only that, but Nineveh was a city that was part of the opposition to Israel. In other words, the Ninevites were the enemies of Israel. So Jonah thought, you know, if I go and preach to them, they might repent. And if they repent, God will spare them. And if God spares them, we may have to fight them again. But if I don't preach to them, then they won't hear the message and God will judge them and that's one less enemy we'll have to contend with. So Jonah kind of liked the idea that God was going to judge Nineveh. See, the problem was he just didn't care. In fact, the truth of the matter was that judgment for Nineveh suited him just fine. They were the enemies of Israel, even the enemies of God. He wanted them to be judged. You know, there might be some of us who take some perverse pleasure in knowing that certain people that really bother us are going to hell. You know, certain people that really get under our skin, certain people that go out of their ways to break the law, way out of their way to break the laws of God, we'd say, you know, they're going to get there someday. They're going to be judged. But you know, where do we get off with an attitude like that? The fact of the matter is, is every one of us deserves God's judgment. Because we've all broken His laws. We've all sinned against Him. And Jesus did not say, hate your enemies and hope judgment comes to them soon. He said what? Love your enemies and pray for them. And pray for those that persecute you. For many of us, it's not that we hate people. It's just that we really don't care. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you told someone about Jesus Christ? You know, sometimes when you're raised in a Christian home and you go to a Christian church and you attend a Christian college and you read Christian books and you wear Christian t-shirts and you listen to Christian radio, you can be so isolated from people that don't know the Lord that you really have no interest or concern for them. 
And I think one thing that's very important is with all of the all of the blessing that's come to you being a part of a great school like this, with someone like John MacArthur as the president, in my opinion, one of the greatest, greatest Bible teachers in the world today. And hearing the wonderful instruction you hear, that's great. But here's what matters. What are you going to do with it? It's not enough to just be well-fed. We need to take what God gives us and go out there and tell people that Jesus Christ can change their lives. Do you agree with that? I guess you don't. You're just sort of looking at me with a blank stare. Is it okay? Is that right? Yes, good. You're, you're alive. I just wanted to check. You see, this is something that we need to do. And there has never been a time where it is more urgent than right now. I mean, you know what this world's like. You see what's going on in it. And we need to redouble our efforts and get out there as quickly as we can. It reminds me of the story of Ruth. You all know that story. Ruth was a beautiful young girl who, through a course of events, actually won a beauty contest and became the queen. And there was a wicked man named Mordecai who, excuse me, a wicked man named Haman who had devised a plot to have all of the Jews in the kingdom exterminated. And Ruth was a Jew, and she no doubt had heard of this plot, but she thought, you know, what? it's not my problem. I'm safe in the palace, and I've got my life laid out for me. And so her uncle Mordecai came to her and said, Ruth, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Essentially, he was saying, Ruth, you can't just sit there and say, I've got it all together. Everything's going well for me. You've got to get out there and do something with what God has given to you. We need to do the same. And so Jonah was given this message by God to go out and to preach the gospel. And I think we need to get out and do the same thing. But I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons we don't do it is because we really don't care. And that's a hard thing to admit. I really don't care. But we need to care. And I think God wants to change our hearts in that way. To give us a real burden for people. You know, it seems to me, and this is curious as a pastor for many years, that those that usually know the most do the least. And those that know the least do the most. And this has always been a mystery to me. We'll have people come to faith at our Harvest Crusades on night one. Night two, they'll bring back three or four friends. And then some of those people will come to the Lord. In night three, they'll all bring a bunch of people, and all of these people will come to believe, and entire families will be transformed in a weekend. But then I'll know believers that have been walking with the Lord for 20, 30 years that won't bring anyone any night. Why is that? What is it about the fact that when we learn more, sometimes we do less? It seems with all that God has given us, we should want to do more rather than less. I remember the first time I had an opportunity to pray with someone to come to Christ. I was so young in the faith, I hadn't even memorized all of the gospel message yet. But I'd heard a church that we're supposed to tell others about Jesus. So as a two-week-old Christian, I went out on the beaches armed with a little gospel trap. I was terrified. I didn't know who I was going to talk to. I didn't know what I was going to say. So I looked around, and I saw this middle-aged lady sitting on the beach, and I said, well, she won't get mad at me. She'll think I'm kind of sweet, like her son or something. So I walked up to her, and I'd never walked up to a stranger before. I mean, two weeks earlier than that, I was about as far from God as a person could be. Here I am standing on a beach about to talk to someone about God, and my voice was sort of shaking. I said, hi, how are you today? She said, I'm fine. I just had this little booklet. Could I, uh, you know, read it to you? She 
said, sure. Oh, thank you. I sat down. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Oh, page one, uh, copyright 1952. Uh-huh. I started reading it to her. God loves you and has a plan for your life, but oh, we've sinned. I'm just reading it verbatim. I didn't ad lib. I didn't add anything because I hadn't even memorized it yet. So I go through this booklet and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? God would never honor this. A person would never respond to something like this. This is a waste of time. Finally, I got to the end of the little booklet, and I thought, well, I'm almost done, and now I can go home and tell my friends, well, I talked to someone about Jesus today. I was totally unprepared for success. And I got to the last page, and it asked the question, is there any good reason why you should not accept Jesus Christ right now? I read that. I said, is there any good reason why you should not accept Jesus Christ right now? Looked up at her. She said, no. No. Um, Does that mean you want to accept Jesus Christ right now? She said, yes. 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 What do I do now? And so I tried to be as reverent as I could be at that moment. I said, let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Oh, that's how the pastor said it, you know. So she prays. And I'm looking, what are you doing? Flipping through this booklet. What do I do now? There's this little prayer. I lead her in this prayer. After we're done praying. She looks up and she said, something just happened to me. I said, something just happened to me too. I just got a little taste of what it was to be used of God. I knew so little. And I realized at that point that I wanted to learn more, that I wanted to know my Bible better, that I wanted to be able to reach more people like that. And that's the kind of thing God wants to do in each of our lives. He doesn't want our passion to die as our knowledge grows. He wants our passion to deepen and our desire to serve Him to expand as we learn more and more from the Word of God. But sometimes we run from the Lord. We don't want to do what He tells us to do. And I think sometimes we have sort of a warped concept of God. We're afraid that the moment we say, Lord, all right, that's it. I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want me to go. And first of all, on one hand, He's going to put a one-way ticket to Bosnia. And on the other hand, he's going to put you together with the ugliest guy that ever walked the face of the earth, or girl. You know, just, oh, you know, you have to marry them and be a missionary now or something. Just whatever is the most dreaded scenario, that's what God's going to make you do, right? That's not the way God works. I love that passage in Jeremiah where God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, maybe you think about your future. I'm sure you do. You wonder, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What is God going to call me to do? Maybe you're called to be a missionary. Maybe you're called to be a minister. Maybe you're called to be a doctor, to be a nurse, to be a lawyer, God help you, to be many things. No, seriously, we need Christian lawyers. But you feel called by the Lord, but you're not quite sure what it is yet. Just know this, God's plans for you are better than your plans for yourself. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And He can even surpass your wildest dreams and the work that He wants to do for your life. So anyway, coming back to Jonah, the Lord says, get up and go. He got up and went the other way. And the Bible says in verse 3, he paid the fare to go to Tarshish. And you know what? Sin is ultimately going to cost. Sin is very expensive. 
know there are a lot of people that will market certain products. Travel now, pay later. You know, they'll show you a beautiful picture of some gorgeous spot. Go there now, you don't have to pay till 1997. Hey, all right. But you're going to have to pay, and they know that. They've got your number. And so the devil will come and say, sin now, pay later. In fact, you might even get away with it. But sin is expensive. We don't think about that when we start to play with it. But David's sin cost him his family and his reputation. Adam's sin cost him paradise. Samson's sin ultimately cost him his life. And I wonder, what is your sin costing you? If you're playing around with some little sin right now, thinking you can control it, I warn you, it can explode so quickly and get out of control, especially sexual sin. It's one we really need to keep our guard up in that particular area. Because the Bible asks the question, can a man take fire in his lap and not be burned? And the answer is no. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to like to set army men on fire. I'm not sure why, but I just thought it was the coolest thing to watch them melt. So I would wait till my mom would leave, and I'd set up the little army men, and they'd be holding their little guns, you know, and I'd light the tip of the gun, and it would melt, and the little guy would start going like this, you know, and he'd be a puddle. And I thought, oh, this is so much fun. Sort of a junior pyromaniac, you know. So one day, I was out lighting my men on fire, my army men on fire, and uh, I did it on a newspaper, which was really a brilliant move. So he's melting down, and there's a little green puddle with flames. All of a sudden, the paper ignites. I grab this newspaper that's on fire, and I'm running around not knowing what to do with it. I put it in a wastebasket made out of rattan. It catches on fire. I thought, I'm going to burn the house down. Fortunately, I was able to put it out. But that's how sin can be, and especially sexual sin. You just play with it. Oh, I know when to stop. I won't let it go too far. This is where it ends. I'm in control. Oh, yeah. Famous last words. You see, that's what happened to Samson. Of course, Samson was known for his great strength. And whenever we envision him, we imagine a guy built like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Really buffed out. The Bible doesn't say he had a great physique. Maybe he was a little skinny guy. Wouldn't that be interesting? With his robe kind of short, you know, like a nerd. I don't know tape around his glasses. Of course, they didn't wear glasses in those days. A lot of pens in his pocket. But the point is, is that the strength that Samson had came when God's power came upon him. But you see, Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. And so how did the devil bring him down? Well, he tried to take him down with these Philistines, but Samson killed a thousand of them with a jawbone of a donkey. How do you stop a guy like that? Another time, the Philistines tried to trap him in a city and locked the doors, and he picked up the gate of the entire city and carried it away with him. So the devil changed his tactics. And he set a girl into his life whose name was Delilah. And the name means delicate. And Samson thought, me handle this, no problem. And Delilah would say, Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength. And he would sort of toy with it and say, well, you know... Uh, if you tie my hair in braids, uh, my strength will leave me. So she ties his hair up in braids, and one night says, The Philistines are upon you! Philistines come jumping out, Samson throws them out the window like rag dolls. Then another time she says, Samson, you've mocked me. Tell me the secret of your great strength. Then she adds this, that I might afflict you. Now that would be the first tip-off that this is not a good relationship. 
that I might afflict you. But what does he do? He plays along. He thinks, I can handle this. No problem, Miss Thompson. And it's interesting, as you read the story, he got closer and closer to the truth, till finally one day he said, if you shave my head, I'll lose my strength because I've taken the vow of a Nazarite, which includes growing my hair out. That's what she did. And that was the end for Samson. He took a one-way trip to Delilah's barber shop, and it ruined his life. But you see, he played around with sin, and sin played around with him. Therefore, keep your guard up, because once you start down that road, it's very hard to come back. It can ruin a good relationship. Sin will cost you. Jonah paid the fare. Sin is very expensive. But verse 4 says, but the Lord, know this, God will always have the last word. He'll always have the last word. Whatever you do, whatever you dream up, whatever your scheme is, there'll always be a but the Lord. God will always have the final say. And now you see, Jonah was God's child. And he was rebelling against the Lord. What does the Lord say? He says, those whom I love, I chase." God loves you so much that when you start to go astray, He's not going to make it easy for you. Have you ever tried to do something you knew was not right and the Lord actually put obstacles in your path? Maybe you're on your way to some movie that you really know you probably shouldn't be seeing, so you've got your hat on, you've got your sunglasses, you've got your collar turned up, and you're walking in and some Christian friend from your church, Hey, brother, how you doing? Oh, great. Uh, I'm just, you know, pacing in front of the movie theater. What are you doing? Uh... I'm going to get some popcorn. Uh, what are you going to see? Uh, Toy Story. Yeah, Toy Story. That's what I'm going to see. You know, the Lord makes it hard for you because He loves you. And it's interesting because David said in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so forth. Then he said, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now those are two tools that a shepherd uses with a sheep. A staff, which is that long, crooked instrument that you grab wayward sheep with, and a staff that is used when the staff, or a rod, I should say, that he uses when the staff does not work. And you know, sheep have a tendency to go astray. And isn't it interesting that of all of the animals God could have compared us to, he compared us to sheep, right? He didn't say, my dolphins hear my voice. My chimpanzees hear my voice. My dogs hear my voice. No, my sheep hear my voice. Why? Sheep are stupid. They're wayward. They're prone to wander. I've read stories of one single sheep walking off of a cliff and the other just following him. You know, the one sheep falls off. Come on, guys, let's go. Get in line. Let's move. We're walking off the cliff today. One looks over. It's not so bad. Let's go, you know. Crazy. So the shepherd loves the sheep. So you've got that one wayward sheep. He pulls out the staff. Come on now. Get back in here now. Come on. Don't do that. Now stop doing that. And then if that doesn't work, he pulls out the rod. He says, don't make me use this. But I will if I have to. And maybe the sheep keeps going astray. And kapow, he uses it. Sometimes the Lord will use that staff in our life. Come on now. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. And whammo, something happens, right? To get our attention. Why? God hates me. No, the opposite. God loves you. And he doesn't want you to destroy your life. And I want you to know something right now. You may be praying prayers that God is not answering. Of course, maybe He is answering. Because God answers prayer in three ways. Yes, no, and wait. But when we don't hear yes, we say, God's not answering my prayer. No is as much of an answer as yes is, isn't it? 
So you might pray really hard for something right now, but as the years pass, you're going to look back and thank God that He overruled your prayers. I'm so glad that God does not work the way that some of these false teachers says He does, where you demand certain things of Him, and if you claim it in Jesus' name, God will do exactly what you say. I'm so glad that I can say, Lord, here's what I think I need, but not my will, but Yours be done. Because as the years pass, you'll say, Lord, you were so right to not say yes to that prayer. Maybe it's this girl you fall in love with or this guy. You say, that's the one I want to marry. That's the one for me. Lord, give that person to me. Lord, help us to get married. I know that's your will. And the Lord says, no. Oh, God ruined my life. Twenty-five years pass. I've been married now over 23 years. And I'm so glad God brought the right girl in my life. Because I prayed for other girls and they weren't the right. So 25 years passed, the Lord didn't bring that guy into your life you thought he should, and you go to a high school reunion, and you see him. He looks a little different than he did in high school. And you say, thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayer. You're so good. God knows what he's doing. Trust that. Don't run from his will. Run toward it. But the Lord, God will always have the final word. And there's another interesting thing. Notice how Jonah found a ship. Satan opened all the doors for Jonah's disobedience. And we need to remember this because sometimes we can be misled by open doors, right? And we know what that means, open doors. An opportunity opens up, circumstances move a certain way, and we say, look, this must be the Lord, maybe. But of course, God will never contradict His Word, will He? This is the ultimate test. I got a phone call from a young Christian the other day. And this fella is uh, unmarried. And he's been praying for a girl to be brought into his life. And the girl came along, but she was backslidden. And she was married, too. Separated from her husband. And so he... Uh, friend of his called me and said, you got to talk to this guy. He's going to get himself in a mess. So I talked to him. He said, well, Greg, what do you say? You know, the Lord brought her into my life. I know she's from the Lord. I, I, know. I said, wait a second. How do you know she's from the Lord? Well, I just have this wonderful feeling. And, and I did, there the doors just open. No, wait a second. God's told us here. You don't date a married woman. So there's certain things I don't have to pray about. I don't need to say... Lord, just show me right now, should I steal? I'm just wondering if it's your will. No, he says, thou shalt not steal. Lord, would it be okay to, um, to uh, be involved in a moral situation? No, thou shalt not commit adultery. What's the problem here? The devil can open doors too. And sometimes he can bring situations into our life that look good on the outside, that can ultimately destroy us. So we must be very careful. The devil opened all the doors for Jonah's disobedience. Well, finally, Jonah, inside of that whale's stomach, for three days and three nights, doesn't say a word to the Lord. He's wrapped in seaweed, humidity hovering around 108 degrees, fish smacking him in the face, and he says, I'm not giving in. Finally, he comes to his senses, and he prays, and you can read about that in chapter 2. All right, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I love the way it ends in chapter 2, verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah on the dry land. I guess that 
whale got its first taste of religion and it didn't agree with them. Out comes Jonah. And where did the Lord deposit him? Nineveh. It was Nineveh or nothing. The Lord said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no. The Lord convinced him to see things his way. Where does he end up? Nineveh. Back to square one, buddy. This is where I've called you to go. This is what I want you to do. So Jonah reluctantly preaches to the Ninevites. And it was not a very hopeful message. Here it was. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He didn't say, but if you repent, God will have mercy on you. No, he just said, 40 days, your history. Okay, I've done my part, I'm out of here. But yet, in spite of Jonah's partial message, God intervened and the people believed and they turned to the Lord and it was the largest revival in human history, even resulting in the king himself coming to faith and giving a decree that all of the kingdom should cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. And you know, the only hope for America is a spiritual awakening. You know, we're going into an election year, and we're going to hear a lot of politicians talk about family values, and the importance of morality, and the importance of those things that are good. But here's the problem. Whose family values are we talking about? And what meaning will they pour into the phrase family values? And what do they mean by morality? Because they mean, mean something different than what the Bible says. And so we think if we could only elect this person to office, if we could only get this kind of a person in the White House, if we could only change this in government, and there's a place for all that. And I think we need to do what we can and get out and vote and vote for candidates that would represent our values as believers. But at the same time, we must recognize that the ultimate answer is not going to come from the White House. It's not going to come from Congress. It's not going to come from the Senate. The spiritual awakening that America needs is going to start with us. You know, we can point our finger at Hollywood and say Hollywood's the cause of all the problems. We can point our finger at the politicians and say they're the source of all of the problems. But when God looks at the spiritual sickness of our country, guess where He points His finger? He points it at Greg Laurie, and he points it at you. And he says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. We want to see America healed. We want to see this plague of violent crime turn back. We want to see the drug epidemic Stop. We want to see marriages not falling apart like they are now. We want to see change. But what's going to do it? Only a work of God. A revival. An awakening. And I pray one will come. But you know what? I don't believe we can make a revival happen. I believe it's something that only God can do. Now maybe we can prepare the ground a little bit. For the seed of revival, by obeying Second Chronicles 7.14, which I just quoted, if my people will humble themselves and so forth. But only God can bring a revival. But here's what we can do. We can preach the gospel. Evangelism is what man does for God. Revival is what God does for man. I pray revival comes. I pray we have an awakening. But until that day, God's given me a commission. He said, get up and go. And He's given you that commission. Get up and go. Go out there and do what you can. Influence the people that you can. Don't isolate yourself in an ivory tower, but go out there and seek to articulate 
the life-changing message of the gospel to as many people as possible. You might be surprised at the openness out there right now. I don't know if you've noticed, but people are really searching spiritually. Unfortunately, that means they're searching everything from true evangelical Christianity to the psychic hotline, right? And all the New Age mysticism in the middle. So they're trying everything under the sun. They're trying to find answers. Of course, I don't know why I'd want to call Dion Warwick to get direction in life. Why would I ask for Dion Warwick for direction in life? She doesn't even know the way to San Jose, you know. That's a... She had a song called, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Forget that. Okay. When you have to explain a joke, it bombs. So I won't even try. But people are hungry. People are searching. The top-selling books and bookstores today are those that deal with spiritual themes. People are wondering, what is going on? What is the meaning of life? And not just in my generation as we get older, but in your generation especially, in your age group. Kids really want to know. They're really wondering. And you've got the answer. And you can reach them more effectively than I ever could. They'd look at me and say, well, he doesn't even have any hair. What does he know? But they'll listen to you. And you can tell them what Christ has done for you and what He's doing for you. So get up and go. Don't be afraid. And take this message out and let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your charge to go. But sometimes, Lord, we're reluctant because honestly, we, we really don't care that much. And we're praying that You would still in each of our hearts today, February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1996, that you would instill in our hearts today a greater desire to get the message of the Gospel out. That we would be able to agree with the words of the Apostle Paul who said, Woe unto me if I do not preach the Gospel. Let it burn in our hearts. And then, Lord, let us not be afraid. Maybe some will say no. Maybe some will laugh of us. But some will say yes. And it is to those people, Lord, that we must go, to all of them. So give us a new boldness. Use us for your glory. And I pray that every man and woman in this room will find your will for their life and walk in it. And as they go out there into the workforce and they pursue their careers, and some will even go to ministry, may each one have a heart to reach out and never lose that heart. Even as they grow in their knowledge of you, may that burden only deepen. Bless them, Lord. Bless this school and the work that it is doing and the teachers and the faculty. And may it prepare many more young people to go out into this world and make a difference because it is so badly needed. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.